Daddy, tell me a story. Make it a big, important story with lots of people in action, with grandpas and grandmas and little babies and children and teenagers and families and single people, with all of them doing on a great, grand adventure, doing important things with a purpose. And put me in the story. Give me just a little part. I don't need to have a big part, but let me play a part in the story that's fun and maybe makes a difference in some way. Mommy, Daddy, tell me a story and give it some suspense, you know, where you're not sure what's going to happen, that you think the whole thing is going to fall apart, that everything's going wrong. Let there be battles with good guys and bad guys and, yeah, maybe even a love story. Let there be some troubles, some hardships, because otherwise it wouldn't seem real. In fact, some people can even die in the story, but let them die well. Let them die doing something important and right and good, and then let everyone weep and cry when they're gone because they love them so much. But then, Mom, Dad, make the story end well. Let the good guys win in the end, and everything work out all right, and everyone give each other a big hug, and then we all go home, and we're, we're tired, but that good tired that you feel after putting in a hard day's work and and feeling rested, and you put your head on the pillow, and you fall right to sleep, and you have only good dreams. Mommy, Daddy, tell me a story like that, and make it true. Make it true. I think we'd all like a story like that, wouldn't we? Isn't that the story that's in all of our hearts? In fact, I think it's probably the theme of most Hollywood movies <laughs> that have been real, real hits, real classics that have that aspect of the story. And why is that? Why is that? I think it's because there's something in us that says that's what the story should be like. That's what the story is meant to be. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be without pain or struggle. But it should involve us all. It should have a grand purpose. And the good should win out in the end. Amen. It's deep within every single one of us to be part of a good story, of an important story. And I've got great news for you today. You're part of a really big, wonderful, important story. You are. Every one of us in here. It's the story of God, and it goes all the way back to creation, when he created us and thought of us and made us to be like him and to be in relationship with him. It's a story about how he loves us so and how he's gone to great lengths all throughout history, and he's still going to great lengths right now to draw us to himself to be in relationship with him and be our friends. It's a story about how he sacrificed everything so we could be with him and know him. It's a big, important story. If you've been with us for a while now, you know that we've been studying the journeys of Paul. So the Apostle Paul was an early church planter who, who planted many churches at the very beginning of the story of the Christian church. And we're concluding that study this week. We've been learning as he's been going from place to place, uh, city to city, bravely talking about about Jesus and what he did for us. He's and, and being led by the Holy Spirit to set up churches and leaders. Paul was very much a part of God's story. And if you look at the map, which we've now seen several times, but now got bigger, he was did a lot of time. Oh, my, my, my thing. Can you give me my thing? It's right there. It's my last day of my laser pointer. Thank you. I get very excited about this. I don't know. Um, I even used it at VBS. It was wonderful. So, you know, we talked a lot about the, um, the missionary journeys that were in this side over here, but then he also even made it over to Rome. So Paul 
traveled all over the, the, the Roman world at the time. But one of the things we realize in studying the journeys of Paul is that while Paul was impressive and incredibly effective and he planted churches in all these regions, yet he was still just a drop in the bucket uh, from history. He's just one man in the story who was able to make only a limited impact because he was one guy with one life. He could only be at one place at a time. He covered thousands of miles back and forth. He traipsed through all this. He covered thousands of miles on foot um, and planted dozens of churches and supported them. But there were hundreds of cities and places where Paul never, ever set his foot. Uh, And in the span of his traveling ministry was only 20 or so years, um, really a blink of the eye in the course of history. And it's interesting that the other apostles were also sent out, and they also talked about the good news in many different regions. If we look at the next slide, um, it shows us that um, Mark went on down to Egypt, uh, Thomas went out here to India, Philip to Hierapolis, and they think that James went out to Spain. This is what um, history legend tells us, that each person went out and started planting churches, but each person who planted churches and spread the good news still only had a limited reach, one man or woman's lifetime to tell the story of God. And additionally, as you look over the course of history, the other forces then came along later into these same places, and places that once had many churches had very few. It was very interesting. We were in Turkey for most of our trip, which is where a lot of these early churches were formed, right in here. And in the year 1000, Turkey, that area was 90% Christian. It had just all these churches were planted. But if you go to it now, it's about about 90% Muslim. You can barely find a working Christian church there. So that early cradle of Christianity is no longer the cradle of Christianity. But Christianity has spread all over the world. It's still the largest faith in the world, and it's growing by leaps and bounds in other unlikely places like Africa and South America and China. So it's kind of like the blockbuster movie that just when you think it's all over, oh, no, it's gone, it's not, you know, the, the main character's about to die, then there's a plot twist, right? And everything changes, and suddenly you say, oh, now I know what's happening. Now I know what's going on. See, history is his story. It's God's story. It's a blockbuster movie that he is bringing to pass, and he started it, and he's going to bring it to its epic conclusion. God is in charge of all of history and all of these places. And so here's what we know about the conclusion of the story. That at the end of time, Jesus is coming back for us. Justice will come for all. The good does win. Hallelujah. Good will triumph over evil in the end. And we will have a place in heaven where there will be no more tears and no more crying and no more sorrow. Hallelujah. We hear a little bit about the end of the story and the end of the Bible in Revelation 21. It says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among people, and his God himself will be with them, Oh, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And so here's what I really want us to know about the story as we conclude our study of the journeys of Paul. I want you to know that there's a place for you in the story, for every one of us. There's a place for me and there's a place for you. It starts with us. I've been saying it, and I hope you've been starting to absorb it, that Christianity is a passed-on faith. It's God, first of all, calls us, and he may be calling you this morning. You may not know him. You may not be even sure about any of this Christianity stuff, and that's awesome. That's fine. Because, but God is calling to you, I believe, and, and I pray that you would simply listen. Take some time in your life to listen, to see if he's there, to hear 
if he's present and if he's talking to you. He wants you to be part of the story, too. He's inviting every one of us into his story. But if you hear the story and you believe it and you receive it and your life is changed and transformed by the Spirit of God, it's not just for you. Because then it's going to burst up in your heart that you're going to want to tell someone else about what Jesus did for you. And it may cause them to then want to receive the story for themselves. And then they, it will bubble up inside of them. And they're going to want to tell someone else about what Jesus has done for them. And the story will go on and on. And it's like embers bursting into flame. We will be part of a great cloud of witnesses. All attesting to the power of the story of Jesus Christ who died for us and loves us and walks with us. Hallelujah. Do I get it? Amen for that. Amen. The story started back in the first century Rome, carried on through the Middle Ages, the Reformation, and to today in our 21st century because it's such very good news. It's so compelling. could not be denied and has to be told. And this is the good news, that God loves you, that he created you to be in relationship with him. And he sent his son to die for you so that you and I could live in relationship with him. That's it. It's as simple as that. You want to be baptized? That's all. You don't have to go through a lot of hoops. The baptism class isn't a whole lot of things you've got to learn. It's just you believe in Jesus and that he died for your sins. That's all. Amen. Then be baptized. Come and know him. And we get to be part of his kingdom story on earth. That's what we get to be part of. And the story keeps going on. And I want to just say this morning that we, each one of you is necessary to the story. That he has a place for you already in the story. You, you're part of the chain that carries on from the beginning of time. And, and, and I want each one of us to be able to be part of the story. And here's the thing. He won't force you to be part of his story. Even if you're a believer, you may be very busy with other things. You may decide that, you know, you don't want to get too involved. It's too much. You know, I just, I, I got things to do. And, and if you want to opt out, that's fine. God will never drag you into his story. He will, he will love you and he'll be with you, but he will never drag you to be a participant in his story. But if there's something inside you that says, yes, I want there to be a purpose in my life beyond just waking up every morning and trying to get through the day and the week and the year. I want to be part of a grand, important story that's bigger than myself. And I want to be part of what God is doing and transforming people by his Holy Spirit. I want to be part of that. Then, then, then I invite you to, to jump into God's story. Say, here I am, God. Here I am. I want to be part of the story of God. And I can't emphasize to, to you enough the joy that enters God's heart when we jump into his story. And we say, I want to do whatever it is that you're calling me to do, just like the Apostle Paul did. And so as we close out this series, uh, I'm going to talk about two things. I'm going to talk about revivals and roads. Two R's, revivals and roads. Because the first thing I think we need is revival. It, because, you know, how do we get to the place where we are like, I want to jump into the story. I want Because we're busy. We're regular people. We got families. We got people to feed. We got work. We got everything going on. Most of us, we can barely get through the whole day, get the kids to bed, get dinner taken care of and put away. And then we flop on the couch, exhausted, flip on a few, go through a few channels, look at some YouTube videos, and we go to bed and start it all over the next day. Does anybody relate to that? <laughs> how can I have time to be part of God's story? And this is where revival comes in. When revival comes to your own heart, it overwhelms your soul. And somehow you make time for it. You make time for what he's calling you to do. Suddenly we realize this is something about my life that I want to be central. I start to prioritize the things in my life and align myself with God's priorities for my life, for my, my children, my family, my marriage. It will 
rather than be an extra part of my life, it'll become the center part of my life. Jesus will become the center of my life, and I'll make my decisions based around that. For example, I'm a woman. That's my identity as a, a woman. I don't have to think about making time to be a woman. <laughs> I just am all the time. <laughs> and it informs everything I do, right? How I interact with people, what I wear, whether I go get my nails done, whatever. I mean, not that all women have to get their nails done, but, you know, whatever. It, it, it de determines for me who I am. It's the lens through which I see everything in my life. In the same way, I'm a mom. And my kids are grown, but you know what? They're still in my heart. I'm thinking about them all the time. And if my, one of my kids calls them there where I am, I'm going to drop everything and I'm taking the phone call because I'm a mom. That's, my identity defines how I approach everything in life. And so the first question is, do we know our identity? Do we know that we are in Christ, that he loves you, that he has a place for you in his story? And he's, and he's got a place especially for you that if we listen, we could find it. Does the evidence of your life show your identity. Now, I have a funny story about that. Sometimes the evidence of our life does not actually show the reality of our true identity. I, a number of years ago, went to get the enhanced driver's license. Remember the thing everyone had to get so you could go on a plane and it's got the little star, right? So this was several years ago. Uh, we were still in New York, uh, and so I had to go to the DMV. You haven't lived until you've been to a New York DMV, right? Okay, I just want to tell you, you got nothing on it down here in North Carolina. Um, but I, so I went, I had my two forms of ID, I had my passport and my current license, and I waited and waited and waited in this crummy DMV for so long, and I finally get up to the thing, and they look at the thing, and they open up my passport, and they say, your passport's expired, which I hadn't noticed, of course, obviously. And so uh, then I said, all right, fine. They said, well, you can come back with your birth certificate and your marriage license and that, to prove my name change, and that would be fine. I don't need the passport. So I go back home, and I search through all my stuff to get all that. So I bring all that. I come back. I got to wait in the line again in the dirty DMV and wait and wait and wait and wait and wait. And I finally get up to the front, and they see my papers, and they say that all looks good. And then they pass me over to another window, which I had to also wait for. And then uh, they finally look at the whole thing. And then suddenly there's a commotion. And they said, well, this marriage license is invalid. It doesn't have the, the race. <laughs> it doesn't have the seal of New Hampshire on it. And it says on it it's not valid for identification purposes. So suddenly I had to go home and tell Paul, <laughs> have we been married all these years? Like, what's happening here? Um, Many calls to the New Hampshire Departments uh, of Records, uh, and I got them to send me the real marriage license. Yes, we were really married all those years. We just didn't have the license, okay? Um, and I was able to go back and, of course, get the new enhanced ID. But my paperwork didn't reflect the reality of who I was, which was Beth Russo Graham, the wife of Paul Graham. It didn't reflect that reality, the evidence of my life. So what does the evidence of our life reflect? Someone will to look at our lives. Does it reflect that we are a child of God and that we're in the story of God? And we're, we're, we're telling others about the love that God has shown us and showing it in many ways, in ways that we act, in the ways that we speak. Another way of saying that is, have you had your own revival? And I love the word revival. It conjures up a lot of different images for a lot of different people. If you are of a certain church tradition, you've probably been to revival meetings. Who's been to a revival meeting? 
okay? And the church plans a revival, right? They say, we're going to have a revival at 7 o'clock on Friday. And what that means is they're going to have a special speaker, maybe an evangelist or somebody, and they're going to have great music, and they're going to have prayer for people to receive Jesus, and there's going to be Holy Spirit. There'll be a lot of whole stuff going on, and lots of people get saved at revivals. It's, an, you know, an awesome thing. But I always thought it was a little bit funny to say, I'm going to schedule a revival for a certain time and date and a place. Because a revival is a work of the Holy Spirit. It's something that he does. We could be having a revival right now, and we didn't even call this a revival meeting. Um, it's when God comes to our hearts and starts to move in a way that he hasn't moved before. He starts to show himself to us, and he starts to fill us with his presence, and there's a joy, and there's a commitment of our hearts to him, a fresh filling. We talked about a fresh filling. That This morning, we, re we have to receive that fresh filling of the water of God's presence. That's, a, that's revival when that happens, when you have a moment of a fresh filling of God. And all of us, whether we are followers of Jesus or not, or whether we've been following Jesus for a long, a long, long time, we can invite God to do a revival work in us. It's an invitation we can ask. We can continually try to make our hearts hospitable to the presence of God. Every one of us gets dry and cold, busy, maybe even cynical, and we need the softening of the Holy Spirit. Jesus talks about the different soils, rocky soil, uh, weedy soil, rich, fertile soil, and how the plant grows depending on the kind of soil the seed is planted in, right? Yeah. Only the rich, fertile soil does the seed grow into a beautiful plant. Are we making rich soil in our hearts for God? Just allowing him to come. An old-style evangelist, Rodney Gypsy Smith, at the turn of the century, said this, people would beg him to come and have a revival. And this is what he would say to them. He said, go home, lock yourself in your room, kneel down in the middle of your floor, draw a chalk mark all around yourself, and ask God to start a revival inside that chalk mark. And when he has answered your prayer, the revival will be on. Amen. Amen. It's, it's amazing to me how God works together what Charles says up front, which I never have any idea what he's going to say. No, sometimes I have a little idea, but I, usually not much. And he was talking about how, you know, it's, it's not that the Holy Spirit is here, it's in here. This is kind of what Gypsy Smith is saying here, that it's the Holy Spirit does the work first in us. And that's how revival comes, one by one by one. It starts with us. Something like this also happened to Isaiah. Let me read to you from Isaiah 6. Very um, great passage um, from the beginning of this chapter. And Isaiah says this, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. So he had a vision. He was having kind of a vision of the Lord. High and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. This is Isaiah speaking. Woe to me, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Send me. See, Isaiah had a revival in his own chalk circle. 
He saw God, first of all, for who he really was, his holiness and and greatness and how his hand was over all of life and all of history and his story. He also saw himself for who he was, that he was a man of unclean lips, that he needed to be cleansed by God to bring him into his story, and he allowed God to touch him and take away his sin. And then interestingly, at the same time, a burden was birthed in his heart for the people around him. He said, I live among a people of unclean lips. See, this is a common thing that happens. A missional seed was planted. This is not just for me, but it's for everyone. It's for all people. Let me help them find you. See, this is typical of revival. We don't not only get excited about our own faith and our own walk with God, but we have a burning desire to help other people, to love other people, and if possible, to show them Jesus the way we've been able to see Jesus. Isaiah's response, send me. I remember when I was... um, receiving kind of my calling to go into full-time ministry. I had been a very active volunteer for many years, and um, I had, but I realized God had said to me, are you ready to jump in with both feet? That was kind of the, the word I kind of heard in my prayer time, and I was like, yes. And so I enrolled in seminary, and I hadn't quite started seminary yet. It was coming up, and I had a dream. Now, I don't have a lot of sort of, you know, prophetic dreams. Uh, most of my dreams are pretty wacko like everybody else's dreams. But once in a while, I have uh, a dream that I just know is God. Um, and so this was a dream in which I was sitting and I was just chatting with one of my friends who's a pastor in our church. His name was Tom. And we were just talking about how wonderful it is to know God and then to be able to take that love and just pour it on others and to help other people and tell them about Jesus and what a privilege that was and what, what a joyful thing when we see the Holy Spirit start to move in someone else's life. And we're having this whole conversation. And in the dream, I'm, I'm caught up with this like incredible desire. And I just shout out in the dream, God, I will go wherever you want me to go and do whatever you want me to do. And then I woke up and that was the dream. And I just know that that was, that was a personal revival for me. It was like my moment of saying, here I am, send me whatever it is you need me to do. I'll do it. It's like Isaiah's response. It's a revival moment. This is what the Apostle Paul meant when he said, Christ's love compels me. He had received the love of God, a revival from God, and then he just wanted to give it out to others. And so I believe that God wants a revival for all of our hearts today. Um, something that will cause us to say, I- I'll do, I want to be part of your story. Now, it doesn't mean you're all going to be in full-time ministry. There's many, many different ways we serve God and, and help, help um, his love to be shown in the world, to be a light for him. But it's a desire that will come as we receive him, as we find him. It's, it's the automatic next step. Yes, Lord, let me do what you have called me to do. Let me walk the path you have for me. Which leads me now to my second point. I was talking about revival, and now I want to talk about roads. There's a Roman saying that we learned while we were on the trip. But this, uh, again, for those of you that are new, this is uh, all of these, uh, this last six weeks have been on a trip that Paul and I took many years ago uh, to visit Turkey, Greece, and Rome on the, and following the paths of the Apostle Paul in many of the cities there. And there was a, one thing we learned on the trip is that there's a Roman saying that's called, that says, via es vita, which means the road is life. And they saw that, they said that all the time. It was a very common Roman saying. And everywhere we went, there were Roman roads. And there was just very distinctive. There's a few pictures here. Um, everywhere you go, you say, those are the Romans made that road. Go to the next one. Um, and that was, you see the, just the little bits of remnants of them. Sometimes a lot of it's left. Sometimes just a little bit. You can go to the next one. Um, there's the road in um, Perga, which has the water going down the middle and the big roads on either side. Next one. 
uh, again, more Roman roads. Everywhere you went, it looked the same. You could tell this is, the Romans were here. This was a Roman uh, city because of the big roads. And it allowed, it was very important uh, to, the, to all the people in that time because it, it uh, helped people to be able to travel. It helped commerce to go forth. And it also, of course, allowed the gospel to go out because not only were commerce able to go, but Paul and his, his companions were able to travel on these roads from place to place. In fact, the next picture is of the Apian Way, which was probably the road that Paul walked on in order to go to Rome when he was uh, finally arrested and was taken to Rome. And so that was the Apian Way. Again, um, another Roman road. This is where his path led him, led him to Rome, to imprisonment and finally to death. The idea behind the phrase via es vita is that every one of us has a path. We all have a road that's laid out before us, the way that we're called to walk, the way God has called us. And when we find the road that's our road, that God made for us, that uses our gifts and talents and that uses our personality, oh, it's such joy. The road is life. When we find the road that God has laid out for us, and it's different for every one of us, but God walks with us on the road. There was a writer back in the 50s named um, Jack Kerouac, and he wrote this book called On the Road. It was mostly about traveling, but he quotes the same phrase, the road is life, the road is life. And for him, it was a statement of the freedom of getting on the road and just traveling and meeting people and going to places and finding things. And he emphasized that you, in order to be on the road of life, you have to keep things simple. In fact, he famously said, if you own a rug, you own too much, <laughs> which I'm like, I'm in trouble because I own a little bit more than just a rug. I have uh, several rugs, actually. Um, but his point was, if you are too laden down with possessions and things and worries and plans, then you'll miss the road. You'll miss the joy of the journey and being on the road with, with, with God. And so we need to hear this. I think it's really easy to wake up after six months, a year, three years, and wonder what what did I do with my life? What, where am I? What is the road that I'm on? Is this where I'm meant to be? It's so easy for the busyness of the world to clutter up our life, and we end up on lots of side streets without finding the road that Jesus had for us. Jesus, Isaiah had his own revival with God. I already read to you about that. And he also had a revelation about the road, which he gives us as a clue to how we can find the road that we're meant to be on. He says this in Isaiah 30, 21, whether you turn to the right or the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. This is how we walk the road that God has for us. We listen for the Holy Spirit. We listen for God and say, where, where do you want me today? What am I doing today? What am I doing? Uh, what's my part in the story? One of the things I like to do from time to time, and it's a great practice, sometimes you can do it at the beginning of the year or mid-year, but to sort of write down all the things in your life that take your time. It's a big list, actually, uh, of all the things, whether it's, uh, going to work, it's driving, it's taking kids places, it's making meals and cleaning up after meals, it's, um, you know, hobbies, it's looking through Facebook and YouTube videos, it's watching TV, all the things that take your time and to write them down in a list. And then I ask myself this question, are these things the priority in the path God has for me? I know the path God's got for me long term, but what is this priority that this is what I should be spending my time on? Or do I need to let go of some things? Have I been wasting some time on some things that are just not productive for me or for my life? Do I need to reorder my priorities to the things that are truly important to me? And what's important to me, maybe dif what's different, important to you, but have we reordered our life? See, we have to let go of things, not hold them so tightly, whether it's our physical possessions or even our plans and our schedules. 
so that we can be free to go where God wants us to go, so we can be free. So may you and I walk the road before us, playing our part in God's story, all the way to the end of our lives, and may we end well. At the end of his life, Paul penned these words to his disciple Timothy in 2 Timothy. I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time of my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And our trip following the journeys of Paul, we ended in Rome, which was where Paul was on, on, on house arrest and eventually was killed. And we had the privilege of standing in the place where they believed Paul was beheaded. I'll show you a picture of it here. Um, well, actually, this is, first of all, the location where he was probably under house arrest. They don't know for sure, but it uh, looks like this is probably where he was. If you go to the next slide, you can see we had to go downstairs. Now, in Rome, everything's in layers. They kept building the city on top of the city on top of the city. So probably it didn't, he didn't have to go downstairs to his house. It was probably on the ground level. But we went downstairs to see where he would have been under house arrest. The next picture shows you kind of a little, you know, way, way through into the next room. And the next one shows you some pots and things. So this is potentially the place where Paul was under house arrest. It's in the right location, the right neighborhood, um, and it was been, had been preserved. And so here is this, this was, um, so then if you go to the next slide, this is where he ended. Um, this little road is where he walked and potentially was beheaded either on this road or where that chapel has been built. Um, the chapel is the Abbey of the Three Fountains, which was later built by monks to kind of commemorate the place. The most moving moment of the trip was when we all went inside that chapel. And knowing it was the place of Paul's um, death, we sat quietly in there. And one of our guides quietly read out loud the book of 2 Timothy to us. 2 Timothy is really like Paul's goodbye letter to his protege and good friend, Timothy. And so he, he is speaking to him his last words of wisdom about his life. And I'm telling you that we all wept in that chapel as we listened and we thought about this man, Paul, whom we'd traveled with through all these cities and he had been beaten and, and, and stoned and he'd gone through so much to just bring the gospel. And here he was in his last moments still encouraging others, giving, giving uh, encouragement to those who were going to be living beyond him. He knew his end was coming. It was amazing. And one of the things Paul and I see as we get older is that some people start well but don't necessarily end well. They start with a fire of God in their belly and to do and to walk the road of life with Jesus, but then somewhere along the line they get disillusioned or discouraged or um, distracted and get off the path. Paul ended well. And then there are others that we've known who have walked the way of the Lord all the way to the end of their life. And I don't have to tell you that we have suffered a loss in our, in our congregation this, this past month. Uh, in the man of Mike Cunnicutt, and I'm so grateful that you guys are here today. Um, it's going to make me cry as I talk about this. This is already in here before I knew you were coming. Um, but, you know, Mike Cunnicutt to me is an example of someone who ended well. And he's not, he's not ended. He's in heaven. He's having a good time with Jesus right now. But he ended this life well. Come on. This is a man who even at his diagnosis 10 years ago continued to just move, go on with Jesus and love him and serve in the church and serve. And then he and Janet were here and present as much as they could be uh, in between treatments and all of the rest. And, you know, it was only two months ago that I held a newcomer's class. And Mike was back. He hadn't been here in ages because he had been so sick going through treatments and so forth. And, and Mike and Janet sat in on my newcomer's class with these brand new people two months ago. 
And they just told the newcomers about the church and their, their ministry in the church and were so welcoming and loving toward those new people. Um, and here he was sitting there in pain and struggling um, with the rapid progression of his cancer. Mike lived via Espita. He lived. The road is life. He lived his life right to the end. Apostle Paul did the same thing. He lived that road all the way to, and he walked that road victorious, even though it, he knew it led to his death. How can a road that leads to death bring life? It's because to live for God and to walk in step with the Holy Spirit in the way that God has set out for you, all the way till God calls you home, to my mind, that is life. That's the good life. That's the life he's called us. To know you've completed your part in the epic story. You're part of a story, and it's epic, and it's grand. And how we walk that journey is all important. Life and death, in a way, isn't important. Death's going to come to us all, but it's our life lived in Christ that matters. Paul put it this way in Philippians 1. He said, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but I will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. That's from the Apostle Paul. I have a feeling if the Apostle Paul were here right now, and he knew that we just did a whole series on all his journeys and all the churches he planted and all the things, and we were finishing up, he would likely say to us, why are you looking at what I did? That was a long time ago. He would say to us, the better question is, where are you on your journey? What are you doing right now in our culture, in our world, to spread the light and the love of Jesus? This must be where we end. It starts here within us. I talked about the chalk circle. Will you draw a chalk circle with me? <laughs> and ask God, will you start the revival in me? Can we see the greatness and glory of God and his love for us and how much he has changed us and also see how much we need him, how we are people of unclean lips, as Isaiah said, and we receive the cleansing of God, and then can we also realize that we have something to give to others who may also be seeking cleansing to be ready to offer ourselves to God. So I want us to take a moment right here. I'm going to ask the band if they would come on up and ask the question, what's standing in the way of you asking God, do a revival in me, God, right here in my seat where I am? We didn't call this a revival meeting, but you can do revival whenever you want. <laughs> and I ask just a few questions to kind of get you thinking what might be standing in the way. And it could be doubt. It could be very much that you're not sure this is all real, and I understand that. I understand that. One of the things we can say to God is, I believe a little bit, help my unbelief. Amen. Give him whatever little faith you have, if there's any. Yeah. And even if not, give him all your doubts and say, I'm, I'm, ready, I'm, ready to, I'm willing to hear, <laughs> willing to listen. Open up yourself to him. It could also be fear. I know many times when we offer ourselves to God, we think, or if we think about offering ourselves to God, we think, what if he calls me to something really hard? What if he makes me a missionary to Africa? I don't want to do that. And I just want to say to you that God knows you and he knows your heart. And if he were to call you to something really outside the box, you would, you would, there would be birthed in you a desire that you couldn't deny. And he would just take you there by his spirit. And you'd want to do it, whatever it is. Some of us may be filled up with the worries of the world. I've got too much going on. i got my kids. i got my work. I can't be thinking about all this right now. And all I can say to you is, seek ye first the kingdom of God. 
Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added. He makes room for all the rest of the things when we put him first. God wants to do in you what he did in Paul and in Timothy and in Junia and Mary and Peter and all those mothers and fathers of the faith. He hasn't stopped working, and he wants to work through you and me because we're part of his story here. We're part of his story. So I want us to pray right now and to pray for ourselves for the revival to start with us. I'm going to say a few words, and you can pray them with me if they are your confession. But you can also pray your own prayer to God right now. Just take a moment. And just whatever it is that you want to say to God, say it to him. He can, he can take it, and he wants to hear from you. He wants to hear from you. Holy Spirit, start a revival in me. Right here in this circle. I want to be part of your story. Holy Spirit, I'm not going to define what the revival should look like in me, but I'm just opening myself up. I want to follow you. Help my unbelief, Lord. Grant me faith. I'm giving you my doubts and my fears and my worries. I want to put you in charge of my family and my life, my work, my schedule. And I know you love me, Lord, so I'm drawn close. I'm drawing in close to you, Lord. Glory and praise and honor to you, Jesus. As Charles goes into this next song, I want you to just continue in this place of prayer. You're welcome to come up for prayer. We're going to have two prayer teams at either side. You're welcome always to come up and be prayed for. Maybe you want to ask, have someone else pray with you that the revival would start in your own heart. Let's just take a moment and, and respond to the Lord.
continue to sing and uh, receive ministry if you want to come up. I have a little special present for you. I'm going to ask Kay if she'd come up, and um, uh, Mylene is going to help as well. I'm going to give you each a piece of chalk so you can draw your own chalk circle. Go out in your driveway even. You can go out in our driveway here. Draw a circle around yourself and say, God, start a revival in me. Now, your neighbors might think you're crazy, <laughs> but um, you can just tell them about Jesus if they do, if they come over and ask you. But um, I also just want you to keep this piece of chalk. I want you to put it by your desk. I want you to put it in your car, in your kitchen, someplace you're going to see it, to remember that God wants to start with you. We, do a lot, we spend a lot of time thinking about this person needs to change and this situation needs to change. Our country needs to change. This needs to change. Let it start with me, Lord. Let it start with me. Draw the circle. Let God speak to you.